2: Kind of your uh, childhood, you experience.
3: Well, yes. I mean, growing up in Luton, um, I'm not going to say I'm not going to paint pictures of uh, some uh, kid in the streets, but but sure enough, that that that's what what it was all about. It was uh, playing football in the streets with your mates around the park. Um, Computers, of course, weren't there, and I mean, everyone must have heard it before. But um, we used to love playing football, and we did it every opportunity. Um, For me, I had um, quite a few um, friends who liked football. And we used to be in, in the street all the time.
2: What about your family? What your mum and dad do? Well, what my mum and dad do they're now, they're yeah. probably
3: fretting uh, fretting about me, as they probably <laughs> have done all their life since them days back then. I meant back then. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, no, back then they were fantastic to me. I mean, no one could have foreseen um, what was to come for me as a kid playing, kicking around in the street when you used to go out, your mates come with a ball. Um, but mum and dad followed me everywhere. I mean, dad used to stand and watch me in the school, um school team and when I went on to Luton as a, from 11 to 16 I got picked up by Luton Town as a they called it um a youth player then and uh I was on schoolboy forms and I stayed with Luton through that period dad used to watch all the games and mum used to come with him for company I'd say 90% of the time and uh, they've always been the rocks for me in my life
2: Okay, and so you went you went to Luton town at eleven because you' were already a very good player, well, or did he take on lots and lots of kids well in the, in them days they it was eleven when
3: they started to pick up kids and play for the youth side um, these days they're picking up kids about seven as you know and and, and trying to uh, groom them uh, to be players from such a young age but it was uh, it was a bit of a hope you know you pick for your school team then you get Picked up by a Luton or whatever a professional club, and sure enough, uh, Luton come. We had a successful school side, Chawney Boys' School. It was um, in Luton, and we had a successful team. And you know, Luton asked me to come down and train with them, and end up playing for the youth team for five years, up to the age of
2: sixteen. Which should remind people, of course, Luton uh, were a, bit, a much bigger team than uh, perhaps they are just now that they're coming back. Um, David Pleat, legendary manager over there, um, let you go when you were 16. I mean, it happens to a lot of kids. Can well, you remember the circumstances? Yes, I can. Well, one of the
3: dreams, obviously, was to become an apprentice at Luton. Everyone was looking in them days to be a, an apprentice of some sort. David was then uh, joint youth team manager with a lad called Danny Bergera. But they made a decision. I think about 14 apprentices were taken from that year. It was a good crop. Um, but sadly, I was one of two that was let go. Um, two out of 16? Yeah. Um, Do you remember but- how you felt? I was absolutely gutted, but uh, Dad, as as always, he said, no, you've got to go and get a job, son, and it's much more secure than football anyway. Always good advice. Um, Still wanted to become a footballer, but decided to take the industrial route and become a toolmaker. I did a five-year apprenticeship, uh, which I eventually got through um but there's some trials and tribulations during why do, that
2: why do you say eventually what trials and tribulations
3: well isn't um gambling was what was something i always did i used to gamble at school and and you know really hi- yeah history said that uh i was a gambler um and you know um i had a problem with uh for gambling with game of cards or something but i ended up i ended up getting the indentures at the end uh, there was a few um getting back late for playing cards and stuff like that and, and, and so on. Also, I was playing for Tottenham at the time because as much as I was doing my apprenticeship, I went and played non-league football. Um, Luton let me go and I went to Chesham United. I'd scored quite a few goals for them as a youngster and Tottenham picked me up as an 18-year-old. So as I'm doing my apprenticeship, I, they, they offered me apprenticeship forms, but obviously I couldn't do it because of the tool-making situation. Yeah, so I decided to join them as a part-time pro. Uh, Played for the youth team, top scored in what was then the South East Counties, alongside people like Mark Falco, Terry Gibson, um, a fella called Jimmy Bolton. Quite a few players. Gary O'Reilly went on to be a professional out of that side. So, you know, it was a decent side, but Peter Shreves, who was a reserve team manager then, and Ron Henry, who sadly passed away. Very recently, yeah. Very recently, was the youth team manager. But uh, a decision was taken at the end that they had to keep certain players because I I would be playing in the reserves the following season. And they again let me go. Um, top score in the South East Counties. Uh, again, I was gutted.
2: I mean, you must be thinking at this stage, maybe this is never going to happen for me. Oh, for sure. Um, but as a, as I've always
3: said, mum and dad were always there to fall back on. And they said once again, you know, carry on. You've got your apprenticeship. You take these knocks. And it, it was a lesson that you learn. You know, it's something that when you get knocks in your life, I suppose it's a character building thing or a, it makes you thick-skinned about, you know, setbacks. Um and sure enough, I went to Dunstable Town. I got offered trials at Orient and Crystal Palace and various other trials as a youngster. Decided I'd go with a fella called Brenda McNally who played for Luton in the 59 Cup final. Right. And uh, he was my godfather, um, friend of my dad's. And uh, he was managing Dunstable Town. So I went into Dunstable in the Southern League and uh,
2: did pretty well there. Let me ask you two questions to end this section. One, are you still a gambler?
3: No, I'm not. Um, I mean, what's gone on with gambling throughout my life? Um, You know, there's been um, nothing short of, well, really bad. Gambling's been a bit of a bugbear. It's been
2: destructive in your life, has it? Yeah,
3: it's been destructive, of course. Um, But, you know, I still like to be competitive and I still like to, Mm -hmm. everything I play, I still want to um, get involved Mm -hmm. and play. Is there a wager on it or whatever? Uh, that's for sure. But uh, certainly, trying not to gamble is, uh, would always be a, a,
2: a lure. Uh, but you definitely try not to do it. And uh, the second question: Could you still operate a die cut lathe? I possibly could, but it would take uh, probably <laughs> a couple of days to get going. Now, you don't want those masks for the sparks? That's the one with the sparks. All <laughs> there's all sorts going on. That's right. Carrie, we heard how you were rejected by uh, Spurs and your hometown club, Luton. And got into uh, non-league football with uh, Chesham and uh, Dunstable Town. Then you must you came to the the uh, the attention of Reading. You scored a lot of goals at Dunstable. I think your fee was a record for a a, a player from that league to come into the into the football league. Yes,
3: it was at the time. uh, I'd I'd scored fifty-two goals in the Southern League, which was uh, quite a feat. Then Um, I think that was a record at the time as well. Um, Of course, that. Go on.
2: What was the big figure?
3: Uh, it was twenty thousand pounds. Um, something that Reading paid to Dunstable. Um, I think the chairman of Dunstable retired on the, that amount, and or yeah. he gave up at the time, packed his business up, and went on holiday or something. But uh, no, it was it was a decent fee at the time. Talk um, to,
2: tell me about Reading then. What kind of club did you find? Well, again, I signed for because I had me
3: last year, last two years of uh, my tool making apprenticeship. Um, I signed as a part-timer they agreed to take me part-time for the first year uh, with a view to going full-time training the next so I had to take uh, uh, Friday off and I had to train uh, on a Tuesday fair play to the work, it was Cardale Engineering in Luton that allowed me to do that so everyone's everyone was happy um, but by then the lure of football was overtaking the, the sure. finish in the apprenticeship and uh, not only the gambling and you know, it wasn't just good gambling involved then, but football had become what I wanted to do. I saw myself a third time lucky, if you like, yeah. and um, it was a case of, I really wanted to be a footballer and I slackened off a little bit of work, mm. um, when I say work at Cardale, or at the apprenticeship, yeah. I was just glad to get it over and done with, so I did that first year, um, not quite sure how many goals get. Think about thirteen goals in the first year, something like that.
2: Well, come on, sir, just tell me about um, about what kind of club Reading was, and Elm Park, because of course it's no longer there now. Like so many of those wonderful grounds, well, of course they've got a bit shabby. Tell me about Elm Park and about the Reading Football Club.
3: Well, listen, I was signed by someone called uh, Morris Evans, who Reading fans will remember. I call him the late great Morris Evans. Um, put a lot into uh, Reading Football Club at the time. Um, did an awful lot for me in my career and of course gave me my league debut
2: Managed Oxford to the League Cup in 1986 if yes, I he, uh, yep.
3: yes he did, but yep. he remembered between he, between the two clubs yep. Obviously, there was a situation during that time about with
2: Robert Maxwell oh, uh, I can't wait to come on and talk to you about the Thames Valley the Royals The Thames Valley Royals, <laughs> that's exactly it
3: I mean, goodness me, I was there at the time and uh. the trouble that that caused um, what it was going to be and what it wasn't going to be uh, anyone
2: from that area will know all about it Well, come on to Robert Maxwell, Bob Captain Bob a bit later on um, Reading were in the uh, Division 3 which in those days of course meant the third tier it's not as complicated uh, then as it is now some of the people were there Laurie Sanchez was around the club I think Neil Webb went on play for England was there goalkeeper was called Steve Death but I think it was called Dayath wasn't it and for a long time he he, he hold, held the record for he went like thousands of minutes without conceding a goal at one stage
3: that's correct um, Steve Wood went to play for Millwall went on to play for Millwall I remember quite well I remember most of the, pe- the players that were there um, some remained in the lower leagues and some went on to play at a higher level. Um, but no, it was a decent side. I, I say it was a decent side. You wouldn't have thought that uh, in the final year, my third year at Reading, we
2: actually went down. Yeah. Um, well, you know. I'm going to talk about that because you went down, Kerry, after somebody in the team scored 32 goals. <laughs> I mean, how did you oh, come on to that? First, you made a first Do you remember your first goal for Reading?
3: Yes, um, away at Brentford. Um, it was a tap-in from I think about two yards, but listen, I've always learned that and I've always thought there is every goal's a great goal. You know, you talk about 40-yarders, everyone talks about 25-yard volleys and so on, chipping the keeper from wherever. Listen, there's only one name that goes on the score sheet, no matter where it is.
2: And it doesn't have a description after it either, does but it? it I've, just...
3: I've still got a photograph of the celebration with Pat Earls, who uh, yeah. was the strike partner at the time, um, coming after me. Have but you? I'd scored at uh, Griffin Park and uh, that was the first goal in the league for me.
2: You were the top goal scorer in your first season Reading with 13 goals. Talk to me then about the year that you went down. As I say, um, there's two things going on here. I mean, 82-83 is a nutty year if you're a Reading player or supporter. There is the threatened merger with Oxford United. I mean, just I'll fill in the blanks here for the teenagers. Um, A man called Robert Maxwell, the now disgraced owner of the Daily Mirror, He uh, ran one of these clubs, didn't he? He ran. uh, He was chairman of Oxford. uh, Yeah. He he decided that the Thames Valley, which doesn't. No one thinks about the Thames Blinking Valley, do they? That Oxford and Reading should unite to become Thames Valley Royals. The fans went crazy. Both sets. Well, you tell me about that. And also, how a team who has a 32 goal striker, which is you, gets themselves relegated. First of all, tell (laughs) tell me about the Thames Valley Royals. Well, I mean, it was it was one of these
3: ongoing situations off the field. I mean, is it going to merge? Isn't going to happen? And you know, obviously, there was a certain amount of money flying around uh, in the background. And I've got to be honest, uh, the thoughts at the time was it was going to happen. Um, it really was. We believed anyway. Everyone at Reading, we um, didn't necessarily talk to the people at Oxford, but we believed it was going to happen. Um, quite where they're going to play and what yeah, was, was going to happen. Where was the was the plan? I, I don't know if there was a new Brackenall? stadium. <laughs> I, I,
2: I wouldn't know. No one had sort of
3: explained all the reasons as to why and and what.
2: I think us. Maxwell was big on the big gesture and very small on detail, wasn't he? I, I think,
3: that's what, he did, I think yeah. it was somewhere along the lines and then the practicality of it all come out and uh, it didn't quite work out for one reason or another.
2: And the Reading fans, how did they take to it?
3: Well, no one wanted it. Reading fans didn't want it. Um, they were more concerned about what was going on on the field as much as going off the field because, as you say, there was much in the papers about Thames Valley Royals about Reading sliding down the
2: league. You got the 32 goals and you, that's including two months you missed with injury... Yeah, and they still short... managed to go down. How did, how did you manage that feat well, we as a went, team?
3: went down the last game of the season, obviously. Was, I think we beat Hull at home 2-0, I think. Uh, um, but we were waiting because uh, one of the games kicked off 15 minutes late. And sure enough, we thought we'd done enough to stay up. And sadly, we went down. Um, for me, it was uh, you know heartbreaking. Um, didn't deserve it. As you say, some of the players we've, that was in that side turned out to be very good players indeed. Um, but much was being talked about me moving on to a, another club throughout the whole of that season, really. Oh, I'll
2: come on to that in a second. But One of the games I want to talk to you about, you must remember, I guess, 7-5 ga- a- against Doncaster Rovers. <laughs> they can be very... I mean, we know all know, famously, Don Dennis Law got 7 in an abandoned game and then lost the replay with uh, playing for Huddersfield, I think it was. Um, but you scored four goals in an away game and managed to lose the match. It was 7-5 the Doncaster Rovers. That's correct. Um, I think it was Glyn Snowden. But the, both the
3: Snowden brothers were playing uh, for Doncaster. And I think Glyn got a hat-trick. I just remember that game as much for the unbelievable amount of goals. And, I mean, people who watched the game really wouldn't believe what they were seeing. But my thought after scoring four to get the match ball. But uh, I think Glyn or Ian, uh, one of them, had already got the match ball. And, Surely the person um, four takes precedent. Well, I think the home side takes precedent because <laughs> they're the one that supplied the ball, so he had it. And uh, no, he's, um, still, I think he's probably still got it. Um, I went up to Doncaster many years later and they still talk about
2: the game. I met both Glyn Andy and uh, both good lads. Um, are you one of those who... I mean, you see modern strikers. I mean, I, I know we've got to separate what you did for a living from what modern strikers do because if they get 10 goals down a season, that means they're a superstar. I do understand there's a difference, Kerry, but are you one of those who says... Goal scored in a losing in a losing cause—you don't care about those. I score about every goal. I mean, you talk about the
3: mentality of striking. I mean, people used to say to me, "You wouldn't care if you lost four-one as long as you got the one." Um, not quite. Winning is is what it's all about. But if uh, we were going to lose, I wanted to get the one. You know, um, and that would still be the case. And I think you know, you look at strikers these days, and you know you talk about Daniel Sturridge and sometimes when he was at Chelsea people used to say he's a bit greedy at times but I had a motto why pass to someone else if they missed you could miss yourself Uh, I'd rather have (laughs) a shot I can do that (laughs) um, it's it's very easy people say oh that was a tapping." but if you pass and they missed why don't you take the responsibility to score a goal stick the ball in the back of the net and uh,
2: if you don't let it be on your shoulders you eventually make in the summer of 83 I mean you're very lucky aren't you really you get relegated from the 3rd to the 4th level of English football and then a, a Premier League uh, or sorry a, to, in the time a 2nd division team comes in for you in the form of Chelsea big fee £150,000 um, but you say there was talk about you leaving all through the season were there other options for you could you have gone to other clubs yes well uh, you know, most people at the time thought I was going to Watford Graham Taylor
3: still talks about um a time when he watched me about five times and he said it taught him a lesson because sometimes he saw me play bad, sometimes he saw me play very good um, and he still couldn't make up his mind and, uh, well, while he was making up his mind with Sheffield Wednesday and Coventry, uh, Ken Bates came in in the summer, done a deal with Roger Smee, the chairman of Reading and uh,
2: come and whits me away. How did you enjoy Mr Bates as a, as a negotiator? Or did you, you were well away from all that, were you?
3: Well, no, I was very much in it. He picked me up from training one morning. I, was got, I thought I was training with Reading, but they said, uh, um, Ken Bates is here to talk to you. I went in and talked to uh, Ken in Roger's office, and uh, he said, would you like to come down training with us? You can grab some stuff, we'll sort you out some clothes and whatever, see how we get on. They were training at Aberystwyth. Well, Ken had already convinced me by the time we'd got, we'd got to Aberystwyth. It was a long uh, old journey down in his Bentley, but nevertheless, he had already convinced me his vision for the future of Chelsea. It's a sleeping giant again. A club that nearly got relegated the season before, saved by a Clive Walker goal at, away at Bolton, uh, which kept them in what is now the second. Well, what was then the second division? Yes, now the challenge um, of course. Yeah. So it was a move up. I'd already decided, but once they start I hated pre-season training. I was a bad trainer mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, running and, and what I wanted to do. Um, they were doing beach runs and sand dunes up and down. I did one day of that, and I was ready to sign. Especially when they said that. Uh, you can go back tomorrow if you sign for us and sign
2: back at Chelsea in the offices in uh, SW6. And I said, uh, I'll sign. Kerry, you arrived at Stamford Bridge in the summer of 1983. Chelsea had just avoided relegation out of the second tier of English football. And I think we need to try and explain to people who, when they hear Chelsea now, think of the Champions League quarterfinals and the big stadium and all the rest of it. Um it was a mess over there, wasn't it? The, everything, was, everything was going wrong. I can remember going to a midweek game because I just wanted to go game football. I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw a game in the mid-80s at Chelsea with 8,000 people at the ground.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, We wasn't um, aware of that because our opening game, I think, it was about 16,000, 17,000 against Derby. Yes. We was in the second division. 25-1 um, to 1 outsiders playing the title favourites, managed by Peter Taylor, 6-4. to four. We ended up thumping them. and I got a couple which you know I always say when you play for a new team or whatever you need to hit the ground running it's the same as being a youngster when you get the opportunity to make your debut you've got to make an impact Um, luckily enough this team did it contained six new players and when you say it was a bit of a mess you're obviously talking about the stadium itself Stamford Bridge Uh, yeah the whole I think
2: maybe not the team but Chelsea the club was not in a good shape was it no I mean that was to get bad and worse I mean Ken Bates
3: had already outlined his uh, vision for the future if you like uh, to me um, but at the time they was having battles and they were to be prolonged throughout the 80s really with uh, Marler Estates, Cabra Estates, various owners of buildings in and around Stamford Bridge and Ken did his best to block it and I mean the, the amount of things that went on season after season. After season you the know, two
2: things I remember about the chaos at Chelsea at that time was one um, the brilliant idea that Bates had it was a brilliant idea when he sold the pitch the actual pitch of Stamford Bridge to about a thousand Chelsea supporters in little lots I know one or two of, uh, so that anybody who wanted to buy up Stamford Bridge would have to negotiate with a thousand Chelsea fans it was a genius idea
3: well it was it was part of Ken trying to stop the developers going in there and uh, making sure that football would always be played on Stamford Bridge it was their Chelsea pitch owners which you know are still in existence and a very solid group of people they are um You know, and it had its desired effect. Um, There were so many other things going on during the
2: 80s. We all had the terrible metal fences, but Chelsea went one step further. Ken Bates, you must have been a player. He put an electric fence on top of the already existing fencing.
3: Yes, he did. I mean, I I can't remember the exact year. Um, It was well on from the debut, uh, but uh, it was electric wire on the top of the fence. And I mean, Ken was a farmer or he had a farm. It stopped the cattle getting out and the sheep going where they shouldn't and so on or whatever. To be
2: fair, it was never turned on because it was an outcry, wasn't there? It?
3: it was never turned on. But you know, in days of pitch invasions and so on, it was, uh, it was Ken's way of saying the fans have got to stay off the pitch. Did Ken have much influence on, on the team? Did he, did he like to pick the team? Well, I mean, lots of people used to say um, he had an influence. Um, I don't really know. Um, at the end of the day, um, he would have had an influence on the managers he picked. That's for sure. And when the team was doing well, You know, Ken would be great. He'd come down. I mean, remember after promotion in the first season, Ken ended up coming into the dressing room and uh, the players threw him in the bath with his suit on and everything, and uh,
2: he loved it. I mean, it was a wonderful first year. It was a brilliant first season for you there, as we said. uh, Your first season there, Chelsea win the second division. You scored thirty-four goals. Six new players came in, transformed the team's fortunes. Among those was a player who, in his own way, just as famous as yourself the, uh, over there at Stamford Bridge. Um, another Blues legend, David Speedy. I'm delighted to say he joins us on the line now. Hello, David.
4: How are you doing, guys?
2: Very, very good indeed. You all right? I'm fine, thank you. Hi, David. You okay? Yeah, good, pal. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Just got to put you
3: right um, uh, on this one. David wasn't one of the new players. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry, David there, was man. actually established probably, would I say, three or four months before the end of the season before, David? No, I joined
4: the previous season from Darlington, the 1982. 1982. So I'd been there a year okay. uh, amongst what Ken Bates described as the Deadwood. So I was <laughs> I'm against. What? Uh, I was like a lumberjack. What, uh, what, battling David's
3: against a- the what David's actually saying there, I mean, Ken had this idea, the six new players that come in, including Pat Nevin and Joe McLaughlin, Eddie Nizveski, Nigel Spackman, John Hollins and so on. You know, um, the Deadwood was going out. Um, I mean me and Speedo uh, we didn't know what uh, uh, John Neal who was manager at the time what it was all about but you know he had this vision ultimately John Neal of pairing me and Speedo but it wasn't always like that you know it started off with myself and uh, Colin Lee up front and me and Speedo to be honest didn't like each
2: other at the start Well I was going to say you two are great chums now but I I understand David that didn't start out so well between the two of you
4: No, I mean, but it takes uh, two different people to make a success. I mean, he did his thing and he he was good at one thing and I was good at the other. And it was John Neal that pointed that out after we played Man City and I think we got beat 1 0 at Stamford Bridge. And uh, I'd shouted to Kerry, go near. But Kerry used to want to cover near middle and far. And the ball went near post, he never went, so we never got the equaliser. It was a few words after the the game. and uh, David, ended- David K- Kerry
2: tells me that you two squared up, but he's twice your size.
4: <laughs> Listen, there's many gone down that's
3: bigger than him. Really
2: down yeah, that's for sure. I mean, Speedo's in there swinging, and I'm thinking,
3: my goodness me, look at this little fellow doing that. Um, and just one thing on go near and go far, I mean, I mean, Speedo got to learn that, you know, I was never going near. I mean, little man goes near post. Speedo tells a story about, you know, um, tracking a fullback and so on. I used to say to him, "Listen, I'm here to score goals. You track the fullback." Speeder went running past me one time. He tackled the fullback, crossed the ball. I was in the middle and headed it in. I said, "Well done, Speeder I said, "That's what makes us great, you know. You're you good it. at doing that. I'm good at doing what I do. You keep tracking the fullback, tackling." He was a tenacious partner. He was the best player that I ever played with as a strike partner, David. Um, because for the very reason he said, he did everything good which I wasn't so good at, and vice versa.
2: But David, you well, the result was that you know Chelsea had a brilliant season that year, but it. it, it it really was a tremendous uh, title-winning effort, wasn't it?
4: It was. I mean, and we had a great time as well. Uh, we had some great players, and you know, the following season, I remember uh, we were away at Highbury first game of the season. I think, and Kerry scored, and uh, they they equalised and got. I think we drew one all. But it, you know, the, the Chelsea supporters that day, I'll never forget it as long as I live. I mean, it was my first game at, at the top level, and it was absolutely amazing. And Like Kerry says, you know, he did his thing and I did my thing. But as a partnership, we became the best two strikers as a partnership in the country for several years.
3: There was a lot of good strikers about at the time. You know, you talk about McAvenny-Cottie, you talk about Lineker and Sharp. uh, At Everton, yeah. You know, there was lots of good strikers about. But we were up there, you know, as I say. And as a partnership, you you have to include Pat in that, David, I should think, somewhere along the line. Because he was part of a forward trio, if you like. This is Nevin, yeah. Pat Nevin, yeah, that, um, excited Chelsea fans. It, it was the best team, probably, that I played in. I played in some good sides at Chelsea and so on, but the first team was the most exciting one.
2: Chelsea win the title and get promoted, and people worry whether you and David Speedy and Pat Nevin are going to be able to make it in the, in, the, in, the, in the top league of English football. You had a brilliant season in 84-85. You finished sixth. Um, again, you've got loads of goals, including two hat-tricks and, and two goals against the then England centre-half, Terry Butcher. Um, and... Right. I'm not going to pretend I knew this, you told me off air so I'll say it so as you don't seem like you're bigging yourself up it means that in three successive seasons you were the leading goal scorer in Division 3, Division 2 and in the top level of English football.
3: Yeah, something I was proud of, I mean I, I don't know whether it's whether it'd be repeated or whatever but um, as I say It
2: won't ever be defeated, that will never be repeated it's well, not the way it, the game works now.
3: Yeah but the challenge to everyone in them days, as David already said that you know he scored, he scored in the top flight um, and we all push to strive to be where we're going to be. Um, after scoring and playing in the top flight, um, you want to play for your country. And I think uh, both David and Pat got cap for Scotland. Yeah. And I got England caps as well. You know, it was all because of that Chelsea side. And it was all because of the desire as well of all three players.
2: Pat Listen, David, it's been a real, real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for just coming on. and giving us a flavour uh, to us about the, what it was like in that Chelsea forward line. You're welcome. David, speedy there. So Good luck, David. See you soon. <laughs> yeah, David Speedy, there. Of course, uh, when you speak to him, you think, "But I wouldn't melt in his mouth." But I saw him play.
3: <laughs> I, I, I guess yeah. there's that, isn't there? Uh, he he was a tenacious character. I mean, uh, but he was quite right. It took me three months to get to know what he was all about. Um, but once you do, I mean, he's a wonderful guy and uh, and a great footballer.
2: Um, you mentioned England there, and we'll come on to your England career in a little while. But when you're when you're scoring this many goals in the top level of English football, look at what's happening with Harry Kane now. If you get a few goals now, people are screaming, Barrahino, people are screaming for you to get in the England team. It wasn't quite the same back then, was it?
3: Well, no, it wasn't, uh, although there were people pushing for the England side. Sure. But
2: there was a lot of good
3: strikers around then. You know, you talk about Harry Kane having that season, and listen, quite rightly, he should be pushed um, yep. for the season he's having. Um, but when you look around at the strikers, there are Lineker, Haitley, Beardsley, Woodcock, Mariner, um, Trevor Francis. With the early ones uh, Tony Cottee, Clive Allen. Um, there was lots, uh, lots of good strikers about all at the time, and all, all playing well, and all uh, demanding the right to be picked for England. And, yeah. and and it was a, I would say, at the time, it was a much tougher
2: uh, situation to get an England cap than perhaps it is now. In the summer of '85, England go on a tour to South America and to the hotter parts of America because, of course, they're preparing for the World Cup in '86. And you get a call up. Yes, I did. It was a wonderful time. Um, Had you played much for the for the age groups for the under twenty ones and all under three threes. No, no, no. but think um, so no. But uh, as
3: part of that tour, um, Dave Sexton was running the under twenty ones, and I was asked to play as an overage player, something which they did then. I don't know whether they still do it or not. Um, in the under, it was the under twenty threes. Yes. Um, now the under twenty one. So I, I played in Iceland um, as part of the pre World Cup tour in '85. We lost three one. Um, we said this, touched on this earlier. Uh, luckily, I got the one. And uh, then I joined up with a full squad, um, which was about to uh, um, go to Colorado as part of the training
2: and on to Mexico from there. And you made your debut against Mexico as a sub? That's what, correct. Was that in the Aztec? No, it wasn't. Oh.
3: Um, we, there was a three-team tournament, um, Italy, Mexico, or was it four-team tournament, obviously. The yeah. Germans, Italy, Mexico and us Yeah. Um, came on against... Mexico as a sub 15 minutes um, managed to hit the bar, um, but no, it wasn't in the Aztec. Uh, Mark Haitley was played the first couple of games against Italy and Mexico, and uh, you, you, I played the last one in
2: the Aztec. You, meant, you mentioned all of the strikers who you were competing with at that time. I mean, now, and, uh, until recently, you know, Kane, Berrahino, one or two others coming through, Danny Sturridge, it looked like we were going to run out of strikers in this country. We had none, but uh, when you got this, this call up, Were you determined to have a longing career? Did you think, or did you think the competition here is so fierce? I mean, Lineker was established as a star by that stage. You know, it'll be difficult to get in the England team.
3: Well, look, you can only do as well as you can. And if you get the opportunity, you've got to try and and, and do as well as you possibly can. I know that, you know, um, you don't go out to play a bad game. You you try your best. Um, And that's exactly what I did. Um, You can't predict the future. And it'd be up to the manager of the time, which was Bobby Robson, the late great again use the term Bobby Robson, but that really was, I mean, he gave me my England debut and I'll never forget him for that. Um, Difficult decisions he had to make, um, but he had a lot of people to choose from. And you say Lineker had established himself, Mark Aitley, of course, had scored a header in the American R uh, when John Barnes got his famous goal the season before, so Mark, and he'd got his move to AC Milan as
2: well, so he was pretty established as well. You then we do get to the Aztec. I'm loving. I'm loving certain things about this game in this tournament. Uh, first of all, the scoreline: England three, Ger- West Germany. Well, West, then, West Germany, Germany yeah. nil, I think, um, and two goals for Kerry Dixon. What do you remember about the goals, Kerry? Well, uh, I mean, it was the greatest thing. The
3: first and foremost, you know, when you talk about people standing there they talk about Panini stickers, you, I remember thinking when I listened to the national anthem for the first time, the hairs standing up on the back of my neck, and you know. And your dad saying to you, you know, it must be the greatest thing to play for England. The Panini stickers would go Kerry Dixon, Chelsea, and England. And uh, here on in, I was an international. Um, it was amazing. I just hoped that I could uh, do myself justice and and do okay. Um, Can you remember who's in the German team that day? Oh, <laughs> they had a decent side. Uh, Argentala, Matthias at the back, Schumacher in goal. Um, so it was a decent side even though it was a friendly and there's no friendlies England, West Germany uh, or England, Germany Um, Brian Robson scored the first I chested it down from a Glenn Hoddle pass and Brian who was one of the great players I ever played with both Glenn and Brian uh, two fantastic players Glenn wonderful ability Um, Brian Robson just about the complete player, could do pretty much everything. Captain Marvel, he was known as then, um, and he really was. Um, I don't know how many times, 80-plus games for England, but really was a, a wonderful player. Um, Terry Butcher, of course, was playing at the back, and I remember him breaking free, which something Butch didn't do too often, no. but he managed to intercept the ball in our own half, and it was like the Germans were exposed and uh, I just raced up. I'm pretty certain Terry tried to go round the keeper. Schumacher would come out and Schumacher pushed it towards me. And uh, it was a bit under my feet, but I managed to dig it out. And I just remember as the ball rolled towards goal, is it going to go in or is it going to hit the post? Because this would have been an open goal. And this is that It's that one moment. Is it a howler? You missed an open yeah. goal on your England debut. when it clicked inside of the post and went in. And uh, I went away celebrating. The second goal, of course, was uh, a great goal cross from Barnsley, um, and I managed to out-jump the German defence and
2: head it back where it came from to make the victory 3-1. And you could score two more against the United States in Los Angeles just after that, so you must have thought then, I guess, um, here I am, I'm an England player now.
3: Well, I thought that at the moment, Um, you know, the the game kicked off, I'm an England player, didn't really count the debut against uh, Mexico, to be an England player you you start, Um, but no, just it was all about um, what happened, and you know, unfortunately for me, certain things didn't go right. Um, I was looking forward to the following season. The Started off World Cup, in... Cup eighty six. Well,
2: well, let's let's just draw a line there because the, the, the two things are connected. So there you are. You have scored four goals in your two full appearances for England. You're you're up and running. Um, John Hollins takes over at Chelsea, and in the following season eighty five eighty six, the one leading up to the World Cup in uh, in Mexico, um, Chelsea. Almost won the title. They were they were winning it and blew up. Um, can you tell me about, about that season? Yeah, we we were going really well.
3: There um, wasn't any particular reasons. I think I'd scored personally 21 goals up until January. I uh, was leading goal scorer again um, in what's now the Premier League, the old Division One. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tore my stomach muscles against uh, Liverpool at home, third round of the FA Cup, and I was out for about two months, two and a half months. Um, we were still in contention, but I only got two goals that uh, rest of that season when I come back, and many per- many people said that I wasn't the same player, and there was a doubt as to whether I'd actually go to the World Cup. The two goals I got away at Manchester United, we won 2-1, and Don Howe had been sent by Bobby to actually check or assess me, and it was that nod. Bobby told me during the tour that uh, Don's recommendation that I was fit and uh, could still do the job at
2: that level is what got me actually a World Cup spot. Well, your injury, as I say, led to Chelsea only winning four of their last 17 games, and so they blew the title that year, or the chance of the title, but did get you back, thanks to those two goals against Manchester United, into the World Cup squad uh, for Mexico 86. I mean, we went there with Peter Beersley and Gary Lineker kind of establishing themselves. John Barnes played uh, up front mostly as well. Um, tell me about your recollections of, of that it was a pretty amazing World Cup wasn't it the, the way it went A the heat uh, and B the closeness of England's group as I recall Yes I mean it
3: It went for us um, but the start of it wasn't so good uh, we'd done all the preparations so we actually knew what was going to be happening before once again Colorado at the start a bit of acclimatization.
2: then we went on to Mexico But if you play if you play in the winter in in London or in Luton or in Dunstable can you really ever prepare for the kind of football conditions you get in, in, in Mexico in the summer.
3: Well, we, t- we tried the season before. That was the whole point of going the season before, to see if the preparation would be OK. Yeah. And sure enough, it was. I You know, the, it, you wouldn't have thought so looking at the first two games. Um, because England, Defeat by Portugal,
2: draw with Morocco. That's exactly right.
3: Yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, I think Ray Wilkins was sent off in midfield. Brian Robson dislocated his shoulder. All sorts were going wrong.
2: And I remember, just as a punter watching on the television, I remember that as the two games kicked off, in England's group, for the third the third and last games for the all four teams, um, that it was possible for every team to finish top and every team to finish bottom of the group. Um, of course, we all know what happened. Beers and Lineker had a great day. Um, the goals flying against Poland. Um, but you did get on there. You actually played in the World Cup, Kerry. Well,
3: that was uh, you know six minutes I played. I come on for Gary Lineker after he'd scored his hat-trick uh, in the three. Um, it was a bit closer than that. I, I was on the bench, and I could have played... Uh, Again, Bobby Robson told me, you know, it could have been you. He had the choice. He was leaving Mark Hately out. Haitley and Lineker had started the first two games. Um, It was a toss-up to myself and Peter Beardsley. Don't quite know how he got to the uh, decision, but he went with Beardsley. It proved the right decision. I mean, Peter and Gary were a wonderful partnership for England. Um, I was unfortunate. And when I said earlier in the programme about, you know, whether things go for you, you can only do what you can do, keep the pressure on and so on. Um, I come on for the last six minutes, but the three nil obviously Beardsley and Lineker were etched well, in
2: in the team. and, well, it, and sorry, it went from there. It's funny because they were they were kind of a, a they they were looking forward to the way football has gone because Beardsley was really playing ten, wasn't he? As we now call it, they were playing England were playing one striker and a ten with a midfield four. Um, that's correct. Yeah. You, you know, you couldn't have played with Lineker, That's not the way it would have worked. But you could have played with Beardsley with you ahead of Beardsley. That's the way it would have worked.
3: Well, I mean, you say that, I mean. Uh, Everyone always says, oh, two big ones couldn't play together, you've got to be a certain type and so on. Until you try it, you don't know. Um, I'm not going to say Tony Woodcock was a small small striker, but Woodcock Mariner, there's people who played together. You look yeah. at, you know, um, I, th- I think given the opportunity, it's possible. Um, but it wasn't given the opportunity. And Peter Beardsley was wonderful at the role he played. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: England beat uh, Paraguay in the uh, round of 16. Two more for Linic. I think Beards got one as well, which takes to that quarter final. You weren't on the <laughs> bench. You were in the stand for the, for the hand of God and all that.
3: Yes, it was a 22-man squad. You only had uh, five subs. So the six that were spare or surplus to requirements were in a box. I remember sitting along with Alvin, I think uh, Irving Scholar, the Tottenham chairman was in there quite a few dignitaries
2: were in the box and uh, You do know that Alvin Martin seriously believes that if he'd been playing instead of Terry Fennig England would have won that game <laughs> He's told <laughs> me that sh- more than once. I'm sure Alvin does,
3: you know, I'm sure <laughs> Alvin does and I'm not going to dis- dispute that uh, but listen, it's one of them things, uh, we watched it, we, we couldn't quite see whether it was the hand of God or what at the time, we didn't know whether he handled it but we knew Schultz was upset and all the rest of it and uh, we weren't sure whether he got his head to it or not but you was sure about the other goal and I still think it's the greatest goal in World Cup history Um, and uh, you know whether people think or otherwise I think Maradona is arguably
2: the greatest Um, I think he was the greatest I ever saw yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't argue with that Um, I loved Ian Cruyff when I was a kid but even Cruyff when when Maradona came along, because he could win, he was winning games on his own. Was didn't need a team, did he? All the time, um, what was the mood? What was the England camp like? You know, because to go out in, the, in that stage, the quarterfinal of a World Cup in such circumstances, I don't suppose there are many uh, experiences in a career that match up to it.
3: No, um, obviously the the mood was one of uh, um, a distraught feeling. Schultz was and Terry Butcher very emotional. Bobby Robson, of course. Uh, emotional about the fact that it was handball And uh, you know Everyone was gutted about the fact we're going home Because it was a team that possibly Was on the up And it could have won the World Cup, who knows But um You know, we were gutted about the whole the whole issue um, And there isn't much more you can say You know, you're going home These things happen
2: um And even today these things are still happening Well look Let me ask you then, That you went on the following year, played a couple more games for England, final game as a sub against Sweden in September of 86. You finished with the eight caps and four goals. Should you have played more for England, Kerry? Well, considering what
3: happened with Lineker and Beardsley, you know, um, possibly not. Um, I'm grateful for the eight caps that I got. Um, You know, you set out as a kid and then streets at Luton, kicking around with your mates to to have played at the Aztec and scored for your country, Um, however many times you did it. Um, it's done, and uh, I'm grateful for Bobby Robson for picking me for them eight times.
2: Got any of the shirts? Got any of the caps still? I've got them all. Good man. Um, over the next uh, couple of years, in the mid to late 80s, things didn't go so well. They started to uh, the team started to fall apart. You were un- uh, unhappy at times as well. I think you asked for a transfer at one stage.
3: Um, I didn't necessarily. I didn't ask for a transfer, uh-huh. but um, sadly, John Hollins who had taken over as uh, manager, and, it, uh, and he's a good guy, John. Um, It was his first managerial experience um, replacing John Neal. Didn't quite work out. Some of the players, Speedo was arguing, Nigel Spackman was arguing, Ernie Wally, who who I found a nice guy as well, Um, but he wasn't getting on with some of the players and there was turmoil in the dressing room. Of course, once turmoil is in the dressing room, um, you don't really recover and it it shows on the field and uh, some of the results reflected that. And of course, um, players started leaving. Uh, The team started a slump and I've got to say we remained in that slump for a few years
2: You could have gone I think there was an awful lot of in speculation about your clubs, other London clubs actually West Ham and Arsenal I think were both uh, desperate to try and sign you
3: Yes uh, they were both linked uh, with me um, I was unaware of a lot of this that was going on but Ken Bates uh, summoned me to his farm at Beaconsfield one morning and said look you know um, all this talk about um, you going um, you're not going anywhere uh, things are changing at this club and I want you to sign a new deal. He said, uh, he offered offered me a deal, t- talk terms. Um, I ended up signing a two-year extension. He sacked John Hollins and his staff a couple of weeks later, and Bobby Campbell became manager. Um, that was the change that had happened. Bobby had been working at the club. Um, I don't know what his title was, but he was working alongside John Hollins. I think Ernie might have even left during that period, but... Um, There was turmoil in the management areas as well, but Bobby got the job. Not quite sure what it was, but um, stability returned to the club. Bobby signed one or two of his own players and um, we did very well under Bobby and came back, uh, I think it was 89 season in uh, quite a spectacular style.
2: Well, we'll come on to that brilliant Chelsea team of 88, 89, but we must talk about the relegation of 87, 88. I mean, an incredible uh, story now if you think about the way um, the the world is now you won one game between november and may whatever happened in, in on the pitch something must have gone badly wrong because there were a talented bunch of players one game um in the last six months of the season that still left you going to the last game of the season against charlton and if uh, you won you'd have stayed up if you lost you had to go to a playoff with the three teams who finished below the automatic places in the Charlton, of course, were also fighting for their lives. What happened in that game?
3: Well, it was a one-all draw. We had to win it at home at Stamford Bridge. You'd have thought that uh, we would have won the game, but it didn't. Paul Miller, um, an old adversary Maxie. from Spurs days, yeah, yep. um, he uh, he scored the goal for them, and they got the draw they needed. and We ended up in fourth place from the bottom. Turns out we were the only side in history now to, to get relegated for finishing fourth
2: from the top flight. Beat Blackburn in the semi-final, and then the, there was a two-legged... I mean, can you imagine now if they had a... I mean it's bad enough the big game at Wembley but a two-legged final to get out of the uh, back into the Premier League or into, in this case into the first division um, I, think,
3: I think it took about four or five weeks to actually get through the process it was, it was a trial and error long, isn't it? it was a trial and error situation it was far too long I mean I think the league had ended two weeks and we had to start training again sort of thing we kept doing light training then we had a game after about two weeks and then we had another one a week later and uh, it went on far too long but that's not an excuse we we got beat against Middlesbrough lost uh, up at their place 2-0 and Gordon Jury I think scored in the first one for us but couldn't get the second and uh, we went down uh amongst the usual problems and mayhem that uh, well, well, talk, occurred after that game. talks
2: about that, because of course football in the 80s absolutely blighted by perhaps more sinister crowd trouble. Tell us about what it was like to play, knowing that at the end of many games, people would be on the pitch and they'd be fighting.
3: Well, of course it would. Uh, I mean, everyone's heard about um, all clubs them days had uh, a notorious element. Um, Chelsea had their people and uh, they were involved in a lot of skirmishes uh, on the field, off the field um, and there was a pitch invasion after the Middlesbrough game but you would regularly be disturbed uh, on the field by uh, football supporters in the wrong sections, trouble flaring up and uh, indeed it wasn't just trouble and argument. It, they used to fight in them days. And you ever, you, Were you ever frightened by any of that, Kerry? Or
2: was that just something you accepted as part of the job?
3: Well, we accepted it. we, we It was the norm. Um, there was some as you've said, friendly pitch invasions as well. I mean, Chelsea, when we beat Leeds first time round and there was pitch invasions for, for the right reasons on numerous occasions, um, until they actually stopped um, supporters going on the pitch, it was pretty much the norm. Um, obviously, the scarier side of things was when they came on, when it wasn't the norm, they came on to have a fight with the opposition supporters. Then it caused a bit of a problem.
2: You went down what well, the side that contained Kevin Hitchcock, Steve Clark, Tony DeRigo. These are international footballs, most of these. Steve Wicks, Pat Nevin, John Bumstead, Gordon Jury, Kevin Wilson, Joe McLaughlin, Colin Pates, yourself. I shouldn't be surprised then that come the following year, that you absolutely walk the old second division. Um, did you add more players as well? I well, it remember. did.
3: Uh, Bobby Campbell, as I say, had, yeah. had taken over um, back end of the season. Um, He signed two players, two experienced players, Peter Nicholas, he signed, and Graham Roberts, who was uh, coming back from Rangers, he he had a stint up in Scotland, and uh, both players were great for us, a a, a bit of old experience, if you like, um, in the side. Bit of clog too, to be fair. Bit of class as well. Yeah, Yeah. and both uh, could play, yeah. Both could play. They added something, just a bit of calmness, and Bobby was at pains to stake that, we were all good players, didn't know how we went down. We were actually thinking that ourselves. But he said it's time to stop licking your wounds. Come on, show what you're really all about. And we went on a great run. I think it well, was 26 funny, games. Well, uh, the funny
2: thing was that the first month Chelsea were useless. They were still had a hangover from going down. I mean, you were hurt. That's great, um, and, and And Chelsea were 19th um, after, after, six, after, six after six games. games yeah. 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 But in the following 40 games, I mean, just think about it. In professional football, if you win 29 of 40, you are motoring at the very end of the season. Um, you had an amazing run-in. The last 14 games, you won 12, drew one. You got 28 goals. <laughs> and you finished 17 points ahead of the second team, Manchester City. I mean, when you're playing in a team that is like that, I mean, it's very rare in your career. You get to a moment when you think, we're going to win every time we go out into that pitch in front of those tens of thousands of people. We are going to win the match. It must be an extraordinary feeling knowing how good you are.
3: We knew we was a strong side. And, uh, you know, it, it, it something that gelled... Um, I think Graham Roberts got about 13 penalties that year, um, but it was a strong forward line again. You know, I spoke earlier about Dixon, Nevin, Speedy, uh, but Jury and Wilson were both very good players. Gordon, uh, I think they all, I think both of them got into the tw- into the twenties on goals. I, I think I, I scored a few as well, and I think 99 points. All sorts of records were broke that year, albeit in uh, second division. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, absolutely right. And uh, we came up and. The following season as well, not wishing to jump on, but yeah. the same side took momentum with them. You know, uh, Kenny Moncou and Erlen Johnson were added because Graham, um, obviously, age was telling her was back in what is now the Premier League, the Old Division 1. And Nico, they were slightly discarded a little bit. They'd, they'd done their job, but the team had momentum and I think we finished sixth again. Fifth? fifth yeah, yeah.
2: and you've got another 25 goals i mean these days i'm trying to work out how much money you might be worth in the transfer <laughs> market because and i'm not being funny if you get 15 goals a season now you're worth 30 million so if you're getting 20 and 25 and now you know the game was different i know. I understand that more more required now from midfield players so you, all, I mean, people were even talking about you. You did so well that year. There was even talk about you coming back to the England squad for the 1990 World Cup.
3: Well, I think uh, Steve Bull got the nod. Um, what do you think
2: about that? Because Steve had never played in the, in the top level, had he?
3: No, he hadn't. And I think, Great uh, guy, great football. I, I understand all that. But... I, I, I admire his loyalty. I think uh, what he did with Wolves, and quite rightly they used the term legend for certain clubs. Um, Steve Bull, absolute legend for Wolves, resisted the opportunity. He might say um, he wishes he'd played in top flight, but he loved Wolves so much, he, he plied his trade there, resisted all moves and, and scored the amount of goals he got. You have to say, he went and played for England and he got, his, got himself a goal, I think. He did get
2: one goal, yeah. Against
3: Scotland, yeah. I, if I remember yeah. rightly. But he went to the World Cup ahead of me. Um, I had some inside information, said it was a choice between the two. And Bobby was close to picking me, but I respect any decision he makes and uh, he went with Steve.
2: What do you think about the, the last few seasons of your Chelsea career? Because it starts to tail away. I mean, you can't, you can't keep this up forever. How, <laughs> did it, how did it end for you at Chelsea?
3: Um, well, it was a case of Ken Bates basically said, um, you know, enough's enough. Uh, we've got uh, Tony Cascarino had signed there. They had Clive Allen come there. And they were going to sign a new strike force. And uh, they're going to spend a couple of million pounds on certain players. And Ken, Ken told me, you, you suppose you said earlier, about how much influence did he have on team selection or whatever. Um, Ian Porterfield had, had actually replaced Bobby Campbell as manager as well I don't know what influence Ken had I always said that it would be between him and the manager never made it apparent to the players um, but he was the one that pulled me in and said um, we're letting you go I had three and a half years left on a contract I was nine goals away from Bobby Tamblin's all time scoring record and when people say one of the great regrets of your life what is it no disrespect to the players involved Flecky's a good lad and Mick Arthur's a good lad they they were as Strikers that they spent money yes. on. Um, I would have stayed and fought for my place. And the biggest regret of not staying, getting the nine goals and breaking Bobby's record at the time and becoming Chelsea's all time leading goal scorer at
2: the time would, was one of my big regrets. Well, let me just uh, re- remind people you played 335 league games for Chelsea. During that time, you scored 147 league goals. Overall, you got 193 goals in that blue shirt. Uh, as you say that left you a few behind Bobby Tambling. Both of you have been overtaken in the meanwhile by Frank Lampard. How you can bear for a midfield player to overtake you, <laughs> Kerry, I don't know. Well, but... the only
3: saving grace I used to say to Frank, well, you took took you 12 years, Frank. I did mine in nine. But uh, <laughs> what a feat from a bloke who's arguably the greatest player in Chelsea's history. You know, everyone will have their say on that, but he'd be in the top three, that's for sure.
2: Kerry, you uh, left Chelsea finally uh, for £575,000 and you went to play uh, for Southampton alongside uh, one of our former guests, David Speedy, um, I think Perry Grose, who my colleague here at Talk Sport, was also part of a uh, sort of uh, side they were putting together. Now, when I put out questions for you uh, on Twitter, and there were many, 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 mostly about Chelsea, if I'm truthful, um, one person said, can you please avoid talking about his time at Southampton? Was it that, was it that bad? <laughs>
3: well, it wasn't very good. I, I don't think I scored a goal. I played 12 games. Um, Ian Brandford, the manager, decided to um, re- replace Alan Shearer, if you like, with Dixon and Speedy. Um, and indeed, Groves on the wing. Um, Perry said to me, "I mean, who was his worst signing?" I said, "I don't know, but I think gold, silver, and bronze. We t- we, t- we filled all places. Us three. Um, it didn't work
2: out for you. Why? It didn't work why out for
3: us, and I, I don't really know the reasons why. Um, Speedo had a scrap with Terry Herlock uh, There's a fight going on there. And wow, uh, I'd, I'd
2: actually pay money to see Terry <laughs> Herlock fight and David Speedy. I
3: mean, you talk about Mayweather and Pacquiao. Yeah, um, Herlock and Speedy having a go. Listen." Um, it happened. It it didn't work out. Um, Speedo was packed off on loan. Um, it, I hardly played a game in, I think, seven months I was down. It's a lovely place and a great club, good supporters and all that, but it's just one of them, you know, when people you talk about players that fit clubs, it didn't fit with us. Perry
2: stayed on a bit longer, but um, it didn't really work out for any of us. But out of that negative comes a great positive because... You know, obviously, you, you you're already a, a legend at Chelsea, but you're a Luton boy. You still live in in Luton, as far as I understand. That's right. Um, and so you're an absolute Luton boy. Been going, used to go to Kenilworth Road as a kid and all the rest of it. So you get a chance to play for your hometown club, and at a time really, um, when they, you know they were they were a good club to play for.
3: So you go to Luton. Uh, it was a dream for me. I mean, when David Pleat, I mean, he was instrumental, as I've said earlier about. Me leaving Luton at the age of 16, not taking me on as an apprentice. But when he came in for me on loan, because uh, I was in the reserves at Southampton, I was just praying that it could go through. And when I went there on loan for f- one month and then it went, become three months. The season ended. Um, I thought I was going back to Southampton. But uh, Luton and Southampton did a deal where I went back on loan for three months again. David must have been wondering, should I sign him? Shouldn't I? It was going all right. But. He decided to sign me, and uh, I've got to be honest. When I the first time I went out, even though that was on loan for Luton, I, I was so pleased. Um, the club I supported as a boy, the club I grew up loving, the town where I live and love, um, I was just so pleased to finally play for Luton Town, and uh, it was great. It was a good set of lads there, a lot of youngsters. But
2: uh, I had a great two and a half years. I include, I mean, the team was struggling a bit. You know, you were always fighting against relegation, but they did have a brilliant run uh, in the FA Cup. 93-94 uh, to a semi-final against some team from west, <laughs> west, London, or west London we'll come to that in just a second um, and you 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 sort of had a, a, a an apprentice striker to start educating and I'd like to say we're joining the line now part of that uh, Luton Town team that made the run to the semi-final um, uh, against Chelsea at Wembley um, John Hartson hello John <laughs>
5: Hello, Danny. How are you?
2: Very, very good indeed. I've got Kerry here with good. me as well.
5: Hi, John. Hi, Kerry. Hi, the Wig. How nice. are you?
2: Son? Yeah, nice to hear from you. Uh, John, yeah, John, made. you 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 mm-hmm. were learning your trade, I guess, at that stage of your of your career. Um, but no better person to learn it off from, I guess.
5: Well, I was, and you know, when when somebody with the um, you know such a, held in such great esteem, as I said, the forward. When I was growing up, in particular, at Chelsea, all them goals Kerry scored for Chelsea and. And when he came um, from Southampton, I was only roughly 17, 18, on the verge of breaking through, really. So it was ideal. It was ideal for somebody with Kerry's experience. I think Mick Harford had previously left the club who I was coming through, and I was I was um, Mick Harford's apprentice. So Mick was a big hero of mine. Obviously, I'd cleaned his boots and, and watched him play, you know, big number nine, you know, led the line very well, mastered the art of. And to to be fair, John, you and to be
3: fair, John, you were more of a Mick Arthur type player yourself, you know, rather than a Kerry Dixon. Mm. I I was probably a bit of a hindrance to John, you know, the fact I'd come. Well, as much as I'd have been help, Mm. I'd have been Mm. a hindrance because John needed to play and he wanted to play. Yeah,
5: and uh, for for you know Mm. a lot of my time, we were. I think we were different types. Car, I, I, you know. You had a lot more pace for me than <laughs> I was <never talk laughs> about pace. But you you were still one of the quickest at the club, you know. That's one thing you never really lost up, up until your late thirties if you like. You know, I'd you had to end. So, <laughs> you well
3: know,
5: what what were you like in your prime, you know? God only knows how quick you were. But uh, I remember watching you, you know, at the shed and you know, them long balls over the top, you know, you were always against even the quickest defenders, the likes of Kevin Ratcliffe and and the Martin Key of this world, you would still always get there first. And, um, you know, I was probably more of an aggressive header of the ball. You know, I, I did like to put myself around, not saying you didn't, but I probably got that from Mick, you know, that yeah. not nasty, but being aggressive and being strong and showing my strength. It was a big part of my game backing into defenders, whereas you were a bit more over the top because you could rely on your pace. And right. as well as that, you, you were a good header of the ball as well. And, you know, the partnerships um, that you've had over the years, you know, with David Speedy and when you come to Luton it was Scott Yokes and, um, but no, what you weren't a hindrance at all mate, you know, don't ever think that. <laughs> it was, uh... I only meant in no. the sense that uh, who yeah. would play up
2: front, Well, John. Tell, us, tell us about the run to the semi-final the couple the pair of you then. What do you remember about it, John?
5: Well, I remember um, lots about it. It, it was, the, the furthest I got in the semi-final was with Luton uh, to the to the semis, of course. That's the furthest i in the FA Cup. And um, I can remember um, Kerry playing alongside Scott Yokes, Tony Thorpe, and myself. We were like the three four strikers. And we'd gone up to Newcastle and got a great draw where Peter Beardsley got the equaliser, the penalty. Our mate, Tony Thorpe, got our goal, brought them back to Newcastle. David Pleep decided to go with myself I scored a goal that night. In the next round we got we got West Ham and then David Freed decided to go with Kerry and Kerry was instrumental that night It's Scotty Oak's getting his hat trick oh, yeah. he was involved in all the goals. Well
3: to be then honest John, we to, to be to honest, John, if I'm being honest, John's selling himself short a bit. The the, the Newcastle the home game I thought he was absolutely fantastic. Um, he did get himself a goal. Um uh, and, you know, he, he was brilliant that night. And it, it was touch and go all the way through the run
2: as to who would play, you know. Um, of course, when you get to the semi-final, which is at Wembley, I think, um, it's against Chelsea. And Kerry, this must have been a huge... I mean, David Pleat picked you and ahead of John. John was on the bench. Um, it must have been a hugely emotional um, game for you, given what you'd done for the previous decade of your life. Well, it was
3: the club that um, I've supported as a kid against the club that I've come to love and was pretty much part of the family. Um, I wanted don't get me wrong i wanted to win the game for luton town and i would have would have done if i could uh, but on the day um tony cascarino and gavin peacock uh, combined to get themselves well get a couple of goals for gavin um they were too strong for us at the back um chelsea didn't act, uh luton didn't play no uh, at wembley the way they had in any of the previous cup runs um and it was a bit of a damp squib for luton on the day i had to say um, Chelsea fans made it memorable memorable for me from the ovation that they gave me at Wembley which was probably the most emotional footballing day of my life having lost the semi-final and been part of that um, but Chelsea fans sung my name after the game and made it an emotional day but felt gutted for Luton, felt gutted for everyone and, and indeed for the people who didn't play because when you get to a semi-final and you're so close to going to a major final losing semi-finalists people say you never remember but all those that were involved in that one do remember that cup run um, it was great for me and it fulfilled an ambition that I wanted to play for Luton
2: John listen thank you for coming on and just giving us uh, some idea what it was like to play with Kerry Dixon in his days at Luton
5: okay Danny you're welcome well good luck Kerry. Uh, thanks you know, John nice. I'll see you, soon. See you for me soon all the best cheers guys Ta-ra. yeah
2: John Hartson of course himself uh, once uh, a star of a very memorable edition of this programme amazing life and a, a wonderful man
3: yeah he's come through a lot John and uh, listen great guy and uh,
2: wish him all the best Earlier in the show, and I'm asking this out of pure interest now, not prurience, you mentioned, obviously there's a drinking culture in English football, but yep. you mentioned gambling and the problems it's been through your life. At what stage, sure. uh, has it interfered, do you think, with your ability to concentrate on your game at any stage in your career?
3: Well, you never know. Um, you never know what interfered. I mean, how much, you talk what, about well, it... Were I'm,
2: you blowing all your dough at gambling? Yeah,
3: not at gambling, through various things in my life, um, various situations, one way or another. Um, blown a lot of dough, that's for sure. Um, I remember putting £1,000 each way on a horse at, at half past two in a away game at Oxford um, in, the, in the early days of mobile phones. Right. And you say, did it interfere? Um, the horse didn't even get placed, which means you lost £2,000. Um, we went out on 1-4-1 one, one, I scored three. So, I mean, whether you, it affects you, you or you, not... I've You, know, you about needed
2: it. the bonus by that stage.
3: <laughs> I think I need a month's bonus uh, for that <laughs> sort of money. But, you no, know, it obviously affects you, um, them situations, but it didn't seem to affect you... In a game, you know, it wasn't something that you'd worry about, like, you know.
2: Modern footballers, are from the moment they're young apprentices, they're being told now about the dangers, because they've got much more money than you had, but they've been told about the dangers of particularly things like gambling. Do you wish that there had been more awareness of the problem among footballers, among sportsmen, really, um, when you were playing? Do you think it would have helped you?
3: Well, yes, it might have helped you. I mean, I don't suppose you can change your DNA. Um, Everyone says, would you do things differently if you go back? And yes, I would... uh, I would do things differently for sure in my life Um, but nevertheless you are what you are Um, but more help and more awareness definitely would have been a plus um, in the early days uh, if you'd have been uh, steered away from it and, and seen maybe players that had been before and actually experienced this situation and left desolate as such if they could do people a, a good turn um, to go round clubs and actually explain this is what happened and this is how much I, I what I was and what I could have been and what I've become um, it might have made youngsters take note and uh, I think most people are on it now the PFA do a good job on it and most clubs are
2: aware of it and kids are getting a lot better looked after Then you, you go there's one or two fantastically good clubs in this good uh, fun things to talk about as well you go to Millwall um, huh. under Mick McCarthy I know you loved your year at Millwall I did. Um, you know, first of all, I, hang on a second. Chelsea player at Millwall. Hold yeah. the bus. No, no, no. I, I mean, that's probably
3: what the fans were thinking. I remember my first game went out there. Um, Mick had signed us, and uh, he only gave me, till the end of the season, I left Luton. Uh, it, was, it was around January or February. Mick took me on a, I think it was a loan at the time as well, yeah. Till the end of the season. Um, I didn't know what to, what to think, but uh, went there anyway. And, of course, I was selected, and... Uh, there was scummer, scummer from the terraces. <laughs> this I'll is think. from your home supporters, yeah. Oh yeah, the home supporters, and uh, I'm thinking, oh my god, it's gonna be one of them before I even start. I've had one at Southampton. I'm gonna get get another one, but uh, I managed to score. Uh, we won one nil. Makes and a huge difference, doesn't well, it? Well, it does make a difference. And after the, in the next game, when I was selected, um, it was still a bit of a uh, undercurrent, if you like. But I scored again, and then I scored away at Port Vale, and I hit the ground running, and. Uh, All of a sudden, they were actually starting to sing my name, some of them, although it might sound strange. But it turned out I had a great time at Millwall. I I signed for them uh, a a year in the summer. I got through until the end of that season. Wasn't sure whether I was going to be offered another deal, but Mick did, and uh, I signed for another year. Um,
2: But your time at Millwall comes to an end, I think, because one of the most remarkable um, events in English football ever, one of the most bizarre, surreal events, Millwall Football Club, I mean, the very definition... Of a, a small, if you'd like to use that expression, say small club, is the second division uh, at the sure. time. I mean, and of course, they, they topped the Premier yeah. League not so yeah. not a many yeah. years ago. I mean, it's about the local community and it's about Middle and no well. one likes it. No, they went away and signed two Russian internationals. Oh. Um, it didn't go well though. What were they called again? you're and Kulkov. Right, Sergei Yuran and Vasily Kulkov, that's right. No, yeah, Uran and Kulkov. But yeah, yeah. well, what happened was, you know, that summer when I
3: signed, they they signed a few new players at Millwall. I mean, you talk about the community and definitely, um, for, Millwall is a community club and, and it's a well-supported club that is held dear to the heart of the local community. And generations follow generations. And, and you find that. And yeah. listen, mixed in with a lot of the community, and there's some good lads in, there, in and around there, some good people, but, you know... Around Christmas time, Mick come and pulled me. They'd already had uh, Juve Fuchs had signed for seven hundred and fifty thousand in the summer. Wow. Chris Malkin, they were going to be the first choice. I was pretty much back up as an experienced older striker. Yes, which is fair enough. I was happy for the year's contract at the time. Sure. Um, well, it didn't. It was going okay, or I thought it was. And this this decision to sign uh, a couple of Russians, Mick said to me, "Look, we're signing a couple of Russians. Um, you're gonna. We'll try and get you out on loan. You're not going to be the backup to these two." Um, you know, because there's going to be other players we're going to have to put in. I thought, all right, fine, no problem. I'll I'll take it. I'm you know towards the end of my career. Sure. Well these two Russians turned up They there, vo- bottle of vodka in the in the training bag, <laughs> they turned up in the thing. Mick McCarthy says to um, Ben Thatcher and Keith Stevens and and, Ryan and, and, and of that Rhino, he says, "Go easy on me on them in training." They go, go easy on them. I think these two pampered people. Well, the first thing is. I, mean, I think Ben Thatcher volleyed one to Rhino and Rhino volleyed him into the in, into the trees or something like <laughs> that. And Mick went nuts. It, it was a crazy situation. They never settled down. Reputedly, they were here for something like five grand a week. Well, we couldn't can... even believe it. I mean, I was out being farmed out by then. I mean, I think I went out on. Uh, I think I signed for Watford. Uh, yeah, uh, did, a couple briefly, of games yeah. later, and I, I watched what was going on there. I mean, Millwall, who were near the top of the league, we were challenging in just after Christmas. Yes, I think they ended up getting relegated that season. It, it, it was a disaster. They didn't try, and they drank vodka. They, they didn't speak the language. It was nuts. And
2: uh, I remember Uran... was a wrong one. Afterwards, on his way out at Heathrow, Uran was it, being interviewed on television, and he's faltering English. He had to think about the words. He went, yeah, Millwall, it's the worst club in the world. <laughs> he, so, obviously, the feeling was mutual. Oh, I think it was, yeah. You played a few games for Watford, and you ended up, uh, your playing career, and you become player-manager at Doncaster Rovers. Oh. And again, I, I have to say... You happen to coincide, Kerry, with one of the most notorious, and that's the correct word, chairman in English football history, Um, Ken Richardson. um, The club was in financial turmoil. Um, He eventually was jailed for for trying to burn down the main stand.
3: Well, that happened just before me. I mean, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I mean, I was offered a... It was a a comical to start with. I was offered a player manager's role uh, to go to Doncaster. Um, Sammy Chung, when I got there, was actually still manager. And I was introduced to the crowd before the game. They hadn't even sacked me sack at the time, and I, I couldn't believe it that the hierarchy there—and it, it turned out there wasn't really much hierarchy—hadn't um, even sacked Sammy Chung. And the poor lad was told on the day of the game that he was outed. And I was introduced before the game, and I, I really was. It was like, wow, oh, this is this is a crazy situation. But it would only get crazier because I mean, I was all right for the first couple of months. The team was doing okay, but. You talk about interference. This was a first taste of, you know, chairman interfering with... This This guy used to keep you on the phone for about three or four hours talking. I don't know what he knew about football, which was minimal. And then he'd want to pick the team. He'd tell you who to leave out. There was a lad on £800 a week uh, called Paul Birch, who used to be at Wolverhampton Wanderers and Aston Villa and so on. And Good player. He said, he's not playing. And if he don't play, I'm not putting no money in this week. Well, if the money didn't come into the club through this Mr Richardson, who was the benefactor... Um, people didn't get paid. So Birchie said, I need my money, I'd rather not play. So this is what you're up against, players who didn't want to play rather get their money and it was chaos. Uh, I, I couldn't handle it, I tried to get out of the contract, um, I managed to do a year. And did, instead, did you,
2: did you realise he was an absolute wrong No,
3: not at the time, but it didn't take me long to okay. realise. Right. Um, um, you know, this this wasn't, and if this is going to be football management, this is not for me, you know. Um, but uh, I was on a player's contract, so he couldn't actually sack me. Um and what happened was, I, I basically took the train and let him let him carry on. The club went into he put the club into administration, and I negotiated a deal with the administrators to to leave the club. That was after about eighteen months. But I have to say, in that time, there was protests throughout Doncaster, and the people of Doncaster were wonderful. I have to say, I was honest with them. I used to, I just tell them as it was, um, it's not to do with me. They used to come and do press reports. I'd say, you better speak to whatever's going on because he's going to do what he's going to do and there's nothing I can do about it. Players want to get paid. He basically controls it and and that was the situation. I negotiated my release. I don't know who took over. I think he he carried on doing it himself for a while, but they went out of the football league, I think.
2: It's funny now. We're laughing about it. We always like a villain and all the rest of it. And, of course, he does get his comeuppance and and goes to prison and all the rest of it. But, actually, these stories, there's there's always a a pain at the middle of them. That is... These football clubs are precious to these towns, these communities, and to see some of the people. And, and I mean, you've been in the middle of it. It is it is heartbreaking to see a club being to- discarded like that because somebody hasn't got the proper character to run it properly.
3: Yeah, uh, the people of Doncaster were fantastic, and uh, I, I was so pleased when John Ryan actually. Got his hands on the club and uh, took it to where it is now. It's a well-run football club. They got a new stadium, um, and they they did what what was right. People at Doncaster are always great with me, and uh, you know I've always been welcomed back when I've gone up there. And uh, but it was traumatic times, that's for sure.
2: Carry after um after the Doncaster Rovers. Uh... Events you you've been in and around the non leagues and stuff, but you also do one of the most traditional things at football. You might be the last international footballer to decide to buy a pub. You had a pub. <laughs> oh right. no no no! Ray Parler's got a pub. I bet I take I take it all back. Right
3: okay well I hope Ray had better luck than I did. What um, was your pub called? Um It was called uh, the Distillery. It was in Dunstable. Right. Um, it was an absolute madhouse. I mean to be honest. Uh Go on. In, in the days of. uh when the licensing laws were what they were and the pub shut at 11 and so on, I think I invented club to pub. <laughs> we, we never shut. They used to go out to the nightclub and then come back to the pub. I mean, some of the things, uh, it, it was a crazy situation. I was i was still managing non-league football at the mm-hmm. time. I was at Hitchin, uh, Letchworth, and Dunstable, various uh, yeah, Boreham non- Wood. non-league Borehamwood, yeah. various non-league clubs. And uh, But at the same time, I had to earn a, a prop, what I would have thought was a proper living. And I took this pub, but... Uh, it opened my eyes into the world of drinking. I mean, I thought I could have a drink, but I, some of these people, the way they carried on and, and what they did. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you get the punters in as a publican, um, you want to keep them in. It's all very well getting a, a pub full, but uh, you know, it's about the tills at the end of the day, and um, I wanted to keep them in there. And uh, did, did I, you, I had make... a staff that would stay up late um, for that purpose. Did you get in trouble with the police? Uh, well, the police used to come. It, it was, I think uh, the fact that, you kept uh, the noise levels down and stuff like that. I mean, I wasn't doing crazy things. No. But there'd always be people who want to stay for a late drink. So you just shut the curtains and, and you know, um, you have a drink or whatever. Uh, you wasn't allowed to charge. So whatever it was, you, you, if people wanted a drink, you'd have to just write it down and, and sort it out another time, like, you know. Why are you not still a publican? Why, how did you get they out It didn't of that? work oh. out. At the end of the day, they needed money. Um, and Most of my money was gone um, or it dwindled. And they, to, to buy a pub, it's going to cost money. Um, at the time, I was on a management lease. Um, and I, when they started talking about the amount of money
2: to buy the thing, it wasn't within the realms of what I had to dispose of. And uh, so I had to leave. You've done your time in the non-league clubs. And um, footballers of your generation, um, I think because they didn't make it the kind of money we see now, but they were very much celebrity people because of TV coverage, I think a lot of them have struggled um, struggled either with the, the missing the game, Tony Cotty sat in the chair you all sat told, in tears, told me he's just never really got to grips with life after football. Uh, there's also financial issues as well because you've been used to one lifestyle. Have you, have you, have you struggled, do you think, since you stopped playing, Kerry?
3: Yes, of course, I've struggled. Um, you talk about um, players and for various reasons. I mean, some are much more um, highlighted than others. I tend to keep my um, personal problems uh, within the realms of uh the family and so on uh but it's not good when you know when you hear about your problems and your family suffer and uh, you know they have to go out to various places and you know when you're in the papers for one reason or another and various struggles kids uh, I love all my children uh, three children um who are great mum and dad they have to have this you know they don't have to but it's forced upon you because as you've said my celebrity status and uh, the fact you've hit uh, some um unfortunate times um, people still take a look at that situation and, and you know, your mum and dad uh, get ridiculed and so on because of it and, it, and it, it's unfair. They've had a lot of uh, highs but uh, there's a lot of lows as well that goes to it and uh, I, I spoke earlier about character building and hardening of uh, getting tough skin and about these things. I think both... Uh, mum and dad and sister and so on and and indeed my children have uh, become hardened to these
2: sorts of situations well more, more recently of course they've had another opportunity to be hardened you were in the newspapers a house where you were in was raided by the police cocaine was found um you of course were exonerated and didn't get go to court but again you were all over the papers that must be difficult not just for you but for anyone knows you
3: yeah that's exactly it you know uh, these situations big raid and so on um you know, people start linking you with all sorts of stuff without actually hearing what's right or wrong. And they, they you know, nine times out of ten, they don't, they don't really want to know what's right. Um, you're, you're cast as this, and and you know that particular situation affected my work. It affected my life um, without people actually knowing it. You know, um, it certain good. work got curtailed, and.
2: Uh, you know, to a degree, that's still going on a, a little bit. I don't know what you do for to make your living. I know some of it, of course, is that you, like so many of the clubs, legends at the bigger football clubs, particularly you, you work in and around Chelsea. You're a TV uh, pundit and uh, analyst on Chelsea TV, but you're also there on match days and things. Um, how much of a godsend has that been? And was that been affected by, by being in the newspapers? Well, of
3: course it has. You know, but Chelsea Football Club have been fantastic to me. They always have been. Um, can't say anything different. Um, but Sure. Um, not when you get bad publicity one way or another, people tend to look at you whether they are or not in a different light. And you know whether it's right or wrong, people still can't help believe, it, to a degree, whatever whatever is written in in and around the newspapers and, and various media outlets. But uh, nevertheless, you've got to plough on. Um, Always the people who are close to you, which is something you'll find out um, if you ever hit them sort of situations. They're the ones that rally around. Uh, Mum and Dad have been fantastic support. And the children have been great. I just said, look, you know me, I'm still Dad. Um, they're with it um, and they believe what you are and they believe in you. And uh, as I say, the good people, are the people like Chelsea Football Club and, and certain other ones support you and stick with you.
2: So that we are where we are now, um, and you mentioned Chelsea there. Of course, they're part of your life, both as a player and, and, and now. Um, the transformation from the football club that we talked about at the start of the program, where there were massive, massive gaps on that hu- on the terraces of that huge stadium. It was a huge stadium, of course, uh, Stamford Bridge. Um, and having to electrify fences and sell the <laughs> ground to individuals to stop their property. Because, of course, it's in a great part of London. Um, but property developers would just love to have it and all the rest of it. Um, but now they are, despite a recent event against uh, PSG, um, they're one of the powerhouses in Europe. Um, do, you, do you find it easy to think about the two clubs being the same thing, the club you played for and the club you see now, or are they two separate things?
3: No, they're the same. You know, when you go to the games and you see the people who remember the goal at Highbury, the supporters. I was there at uh, the Capital One Cup final. Yep. Supporters singing. <laughs> oh, of course you wouldn't. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, the supporters, you know, you're one of your own all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I am one. Um, Chelsea Football Club and the support has been magnificent to me. Um, still are. I've, I've met some wonderful friends there. Is it the same club? It might not appear to be to lots of people, but the people who are re- the real insiders, I said about the characters earlier who support you, the people who support Chelsea Football Club, I still see people from the 80s still talk to people from the 70s and I see the likes of Roy Bentley still going there from the 50s. They're Chelsea they're... Football Club and the people who become attached to it are no different to any other football club. You become part of the family and they stay with you.
2: Do you ever think, I mean you must You must talk to other Chelsea fans, one day Roman Abramovich will say, okay I want to try, try something else in my life. He goes and buys an American Football Club or he decides he's going to be the first... Um, civilian in space or whatever he decides to do you must think about what the what, what future might hold for Chelsea when that day comes what, what, what do you think about that
3: I think enjoy it while it is um, who knows what um, plans Roman has for the future um, my own belief is that uh, he will stay and you know create a dynasty of his time at the football club one would hope so, but all Chelsea supporters, the people who I've spoke about, will still be the ones that will pass down that legacy to their kids. They'll still be Chelsea supporters, hopefully, and all uh, we'll will remember the times that they've
2: had. And I must say, uh, just looking at it as an outsider, and I'm a total outsider, um, from the depths they, they came out of, uh, particularly, as I say, in the 80s, when the crowd tr- the crowd trouble surrounding Chelsea had stopped but made people frightened to go to the ground so you had a club that was dying essentially and Ken Bates who gets a lot of grief but he, he saved that football club along, along with footballers like yourself who got the promotions and, and all the rest of it um, when they won the Champions League when Didier Drogba rolled that penalty in I often wondered what is there really left for, for football clubs to achieve I know they say win it 10 times and all the rest of it well, what is there left for Chelsea to do
3: Exactly what you said. Win it ten times and become, uh, be able to say so many titles and so on. Because listen, all the kids that we spoke about, the people enjoy that this particular title, that particular title. They've got, they've got kids coming up behind them. They're going to explain to their kids. Yeah, they and can't. Af- the kids can't afford to go to football. Oh, listen! I think uh, the amount of kids you see in and around Stanford Bridge these days, there's enough kids that can afford it. I do understand. Um, football has been priced out of certain areas and, and it is tough to go but the football supporters and people who support the club if they go three or four times and manage to go in a season or even once for some
2: that will still be the one and not, the support is not going to fall away Chelsea are favourites to win the title this year they've already won as you said the Capital One Cup about a week and a half ago um, we saw them uh, go out to Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League and um, it's sometimes I think I think it's worthwhile for a club like Chelsea, with its resource, to be reminded that it, nothing comes easy. That they all, it almost might be a good thing for Chelsea to regroup now and say, "Okay, we we have got to do even better." It's all right win the Premier League, but in Europe they're even better.
3: Well, you talk about even better. It's a wonderful season if they do, as you say, manage to win the Premier League, um, C- Capital One Cup, Premier League. That's great. Listen, you, you can't get carried away. People are saying you win nothing. You're hopeless. Get sacked the manager and all that. Chelsea are not about that at this moment in time. Jose's won two titles. The club is together. Um, it's a great season. And uh, bring on the Champions League next year.
2: Kerry, you've still got a lot of your life ahead of you. Um, and know and, uh, we've we talked about so much you've done already. And where are you today uh, in your life? And, and what, what does the future both hold for you and that you know about and what do you hope for? Um, Where am
3: I today? I'm looking to get more work, obviously, um, financially stretched, um, to put it bluntly. Um, Need to rebuild my life, um, hoping that people who have used me before in certain areas will um, employ me again. Um, Be grateful for the support that I've had from parents, children, friends all around us. Um, What the future holds. That depends on what I've just said, if it all comes through and uh, and these situations happen. I'm looking to apply myself uh, in areas whereby I can uh, get back and uh, make sure I live, uh, or if indeed I get to a, an old age or whatever what the future holds for me, um, in a situation whereby it's comfortable for everyone and uh, less of the problems that uh, have uh, raised their head, if you like, recently. Are you happy, ma'am? I'm happy at the moment, the way things are going. I found out lots during... Uh, um, more recent troubles that I've had, and I found lots about people. Um, but one can always be happier. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with
4: Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content.